uh, good uh, for, to have you join us on this week's ICEJ webinar. We're starting a two-part series today. Part one uh, will be this afternoon with uh, Reverend Malcolm Heading. A, a, he's uh, a member of the Board of Trustees, the International Board of the Christian Embassy, and an international spokesman for us, uh, and a leading theologian on Israel. And he'll do part two next week on possessing the gates of our enemies. It's a very good and rich and powerful and needed topic to discuss. And it's great to have you with us, Malcolm. Thank you, David. It's a joy to be with everyone and particularly with you on this webinar today. Okay, a couple uh, little program notes. If you're watching on Facebook Live or over on YouTube, uh, you can come into our Zoom platform and uh, there's translation available there. Right now we have uh, Portuguese, Spanish, and Thai, and there may be some other languages we pick up in the next few minutes, but if you uh, speak those languages and want to um, uh, go there and, and get the interpretation, please do so. It's at, uh, uh, on the ICJ webinar um, address. All right, uh, Malcolm, we're, you were inspired by this. I've read some of your notes on it. I'm looking forward to this teaching about uh, the gates of our enemy, even all the way back with uh, Abraham. God promised he would possess the gates of your enemies. Very important. What does it mean and how do we need it today? Please, uh, platform is yours. All right. Well, thank you, David. This actually is a very, very important subject because it uh, absolutely reaches out to the very heart of the mission of the church in the world. So if there's any subject that we need to have absolute clarity about, it's this one. And I have to say at the very outset, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what these texts mean and how we discharge the call that even Jesus gave us to take hold of the gates of hell. So, yes, you referred us to Genesis 22 and uh, verse 17. I'll read it uh, for our listeners today and our viewers. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And there's the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. Now, another fascinating scripture in this regard has to do with the Messiah, the Mashiach, in, Math, in Psalm 24 and verse 7, where we read the following. Lift up your heads, O you gates. And be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And uh, that is a wonderful passage that's mentioned in many prayer books and hymnals of the Church of Jesus Christ right down through the ages. There's this idea that the gates have to give way. They have to be opened and the king of glory uh, will actually come in. And, and that's our mission 
to let the King of glory enter through the gates and have the dominion and the blessing and the praise that is due to his wonderful name. Of course, the most famous passage in terms of the church is found in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, and I'm sure that most of our viewers are familiar with it, and it goes as follows. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wonderful statement. And then, of course, I won't refer to it now for the sake of time, but Revelation 21 and verse 12 tells us that the great and wonderful and glorious New Jerusalem has these 12 wonderful gates. And uh, oh, what a wonderful day that will be when we shall enter into the 12 gates and uh, there find our residence and our eternal home in the new Jerusalem. So we can say that gates in scripture are places of power, authority, defense, splendor, and safety. Uh, that's what they constitute. Whoever holds them or sits in them is in control of everything. That's the important message. Whoever holds these gates and whoever controls them, um, in fact, has all authority. Sadly, the unseen demonic world controls most of these gates today. We need to know that. The gates about which Jesus is speaking, the gates of hell or Hades. And uh, we need to recognize that. So that's the importance of gates, both for the kingdom of God and for the kingdom of darkness. They constitute places of power, authority, defense, splendor, and safety. And yet today, mostly, it is the kingdom of darkness that controls these. Sadly, we'll say more about that in a moment. They do so chiefly, and this is very important from the very outset. They control these gates, these unseen spiritual gates, chiefly to resist the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. That's the important thing. That's why Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And uh, you will plunder these gates. And you know, he did that. And the context of Peter's life shows us exactly how he did it. In that he opened the gates of the kingdom of God to the Jewish world. We have that wonderful message of Peter's on the day of Pentecost. And then he is the one that opened the gates of the kingdom of God to the Gentile world. And we have the record of how he went down to Cornelius's home, not too far from where I am today in Caesarea, and there opened the gates to the Gentile world. What a wonderful story that is. Now, it's important, and I think we need to understand this very clearly in terms of our 
understanding of Israel, and many of our viewers have a wonderful biblical understanding of the important place that Israel holds in God's agenda for world redemption. There is a contextual element in understanding scripture and in understanding chiefly that verse that God gave to Abraham, that the nation would hold the gates of her enemies. They would control them. They would have authority over them. And they would indeed, in every respect, have dominion in that way. This is a promise that God gave to the nation of Israel in the sense that he called her to be what I call a shining light theocracy. This is very important. When God spoke to Abraham, he called a nation into existence. And the scriptures record in the books of Samuel, etc., how that nation formed itself, eventually rebelled against the direct rule of God and wanted a king. So here we have set in place, finally, a theocracy. And uh, this theocracy was called to be a shining light to the world. And chiefly, they would display or make known the reality and character of God's redeeming love. That, that was the calling of Israel. And uh, it can be said, if one has to really be honest, that the only time when Israel truly possessed the gates of her enemies was during the reigns of David and Solomon. Uh, thereafter, there were only short periods of time during the reign of people like Hezekiah or Josiah, whereby they once again held dominion over their enemies. But if we have to be really honest, uh, Israel from that day on, onward, from the day of Solomon onward, never really uh, held the gates of her enemies as God promised. Why? Because of her sinfulness, her rebellion against God, and in reality, the rejection that she had in terms of God's sovereign ruling over her affairs. And this culminated in Israel being exiled to Babylon and, of course, in AD 70 to the world. So that's the real context of uh, Genesis chapter 22, and we need to know that. And uh, in many respects, um, to sort of willy-nilly apply that verse to the church is actually to violate the context of Scripture. The church is not a theocracy. She is an entirely different animal, if you want to say so. But this verse speaks of the national calling of the theocracy, that if they lived in obedience and holiness to the God who called Abraham, they would have this unique position. She will have it again, and that will be in the days of the Messiah's rule. That means we have to define today in what way does the church take hold of the gates of her enemies. And that's the reference we have to have in terms of what 
Jesus said to Peter, the church by its calling is not territorial. Now that's very important because uh, many Christians get that wrong today. The church by its calling is not territorial. Uh, her calling and authority is a spiritual one whereby the gates of spiritual dominion that block the purposes of God in revealing to the people of the world the light of the gospel are then torn down. In other words, the calling of the church is not territorial. We are not a theocracy. And we are not seeking to turn the nations in which we live into theocracies. There's no such biblical grounds to even determine that or say that. That you find in many meetings today that that's what Christians are praying for. That's what they're seeking. I understand their longing. I, I, I share it. But that they sort of lay hold with great authority that their governments are going to be Christian and they're going to be ruled by Christians. No, they're not. That's not the calling of the church. The church's calling is not territorial. It is entirely spiritual. And she is called to take down those demonic gates which resist the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. And we find this uh, throughout the New Testament. And that's why it's important for us today to just examine that for a moment. In 2 Corinthians, of course, chapter, chapter 10, we find that Paul tells us this exactly when he speaks about his interaction with obedience or disobedience in the nations. 2 Corinthians 10 and verses 13 to 14. For we, verses 3 to 6, sorry, he says here, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That is a wonderful statement where he affirms that our calling is a spiritual one and we take down strongholds and dominions that resist the purpose of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, he actually, uh, he says this, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we are involved with something that is entirely spiritual, and we are tearing down these strongholds that have a grip 
on humanity and prevent them from seeing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says that again, actually, in plain language in 2 Corinthians, that the God of this world has blinded the minds and the eyes of the ungodly, that they might not see the glory of the gospel of Jesus. It is this entity that we are tearing down. It is these gates that are preventing people from entering into the kingdom of God that we are taking. It was these gates that Peter went and took so that the gospel of Jesus Christ could run through the world. And then, of course, we have that magnificent passage in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, where the apostle Paul draws our attention to these very things. When he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Again, we are not taking physical territory. The gates that we are salt in the name of Jesus and by the authority of Jesus are those that resist the advance and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. And it's these gates that we are tearing down so that men and women can find their way to the savior of the world. And of course, this requires a new sense of commitment and prayer. And we'll say more about that later. But it requires really holiness of life and what we call importunate prayer. Lovely English word. The word importunate means prayer that never stops, that never gives up. It constantly calls upon God. It is this type of prayer only that will tear down these gates of hell and allow the kingdom of God to go in and to possess those who are trapped by them. So that's very important. So Christians, as I said, routinely get these areas mixed up and consequently claim things in prayer and devotion that are just not biblical. They sound spiritual. They sound very triumphant, but they are just not true. And that's why it is so important to know the limits that the word of God puts on us in terms of understanding this. So therefore, I'd like to bring the following to all of you today. Number one, God is already finished with the structures of the world. And thus our task in the power of the Holy Spirit is to call people out of them. Now that's a fundamental platform of biblical truth. God actually is finished with the structures of this world. And our fundamental calling is by the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to call people out of them. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 17, the writer tells his readers, listen, you need to be careful how you walk in the world because I promise you, he said, the world is passing away. 
God has already given it over to final destruction. He is not going to rehabilitate the systems of this world. And that, my friends, is the message of Revelation 18 and verses 3 to 5, where, again, there's this exhortation that we need to come out of Babylon, out of the world system, because God is actually going to overthrow it. It's like the Titanic. It has already been holed. It is finally sinking, and God is not going to help it. But what he is interested in is the people who are trapped in it. And the call of the church is to reach people and bring them out of it with the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's important for us to know as a major plank of understanding. So the preaching, secondly, of the gospel to every person is the sole purpose laid upon us in the New Testament. Paul went to Rome not to rehabilitate the Roman government, but to preach the gospel there. And we find that in the first few verses of Romans chapter 1, where he talks about uh, his intended visit to Rome. And he, he says that, uh, that he's looking forward to going there. In verse 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. He goes on to say, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, and so on. And so, for Paul, he went to Rome to preach the gospel, not to rehabilitate the Roman government in some way. His sole purpose was to preach the gospel. Thirdly, we need to know today that the church is called to retard wickedness or restrain its growth in the nations by being salt and light. Now, this is another very important platform. The church is called to retard wickedness or restrain its growth in the nations by being salt and light. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus said, you are the salt of the world, and we are the light of the world. And uh, salt is a preservation agent. And uh, that means we retard the advance of darkness and evil because we are present in the world. And uh, this enables the gospel to be preached. And this is the only reason why we pray for our political leaders and governments. Did you know that? The Bible exhorts us, particularly Paul, in 2 Timothy and uh, chapter 2, I believe it is, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, 
verses 1 to 7. And the reason why we pray for governments and, uh, and those in authority, if, if we take the context of Paul's words, is so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can actually advance into the nation. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore I exhort that first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of, of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the reason why we want peace in our nation and the reason why Paul exhorts each and every one of us to pray for our leaders in our respective nations so that quiet will come and peace, allowing the gospel to have free reign in the nation. That is why we pray for our leaders, our presidents, our prime ministers, whoever may govern us, so that the gospel of Jesus may run swiftly through the nation. So we seek to possess the spiritual gates of our nations and enemies so that men and women can hear the saving message of Jesus. And then fourthly, in certain pivotal times in history and in the Bible, in order to prevent the overflowing of wickedness. The church, by its devotion and prayers, has greatly impacted governments and their leaders. And we should pray for that. I'll say it again. In certain pivotal times in history, in order to prevent the overflowing of wickedness, the church, by its devotion and prayers, has greatly impacted governments and their leaders. In all cases, the onward march and proclamation of the gospel was in the mind of God. So there have been these pivotal points in history. In other words, to save the world from total collapse under the weight of wickedness, God has raised up remarkable people who have taken hold of spiritual gates so that the wonderful message of God could continue to flow into the nations of the world. So the spiritual conquest of Rome in the fourth century, sort of. But nevertheless, it was a spiritual conquest when Constantine converted to Christianity was one of these pivotal points. And um, this opened the whole of the empire to the preaching of the gospel and beyond. 
And so we're talking of Europe here. We're talking of Britain. We're talking of that whole region. Suddenly, the tremendous resistance of demonic gates before that had held the message of Jesus back collapsed. And the church charged through those gates and laid foundations in all of those countries that we continue to benefit from in this day. And so that's an example of that. Another one is the saving of the British Army at Dunkirk in World War II because of the sustained prayers of God's people and particularly those of Rhys Howells and the Welsh community in Wales. They saved Europe and the world from the dark evils of Nazism. So at this pivotal time, God raised up someone with his community. The story of Rhys Howells is absolutely amazing. And I think every Christian should read the book Intercessor about what happened and how God delivered the British army so that they lived to fight another day and take down the Nazi hordes. And uh, it's a remarkable story. The other story that is absolutely exceptional in this regard is the Great Awakening in the original 13 states of the United States of America. And this awakening took place while these states were still under British rule. And George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards led a revival that was absolutely amazing uh, with, that went up and down those East Coast states. I'm sure that David knows all about this. And, uh, and it's a wonderful story. And if you haven't heard it, you should go to Williamsburg, Virginia, and you'll hear the story. It truly is remarkable. But this awakening actually enabled those leaders of that time who led the revolution against England to place in their governance a constitution that has enabled the USA up until today to become the greatest catalyst for the proclamation of the gospel that the world has ever seen. And that's true, my friends. That which the United States of America did throughout the world in their missionary advance has been absolutely amazing. And that story is not properly told. But they've gone from nation to nation. And not only that, it provided a door into the states that are thereafter joined that gave an impetus to the gospel of Jesus in the 50 states of the United States, which has been astonishing. And today there are millions and millions and millions of evangelical Christians in the United States of America. And not only that, but up until this time, America has been the enduring friend of Israel because of the impact of the gospel of Jesus on that nation that began with Jonathan Edwards 
and George Whitfield. And we could speak of William Wilberforce, a political leader in England, an evangelical who used his position in the British government to abolish slavery. And together with him is David Livingstone, who also played a hand in the abolition of slavery. And then there's Lord Balfour. I'm not sure whether any of you have really read the story about Lord Balfour, who is famous for the Balfour Declaration that paved the way for the establishment of the State of Israel. But Lord Balfour came out of a very, very strong Bible-believing home. And he, too, was a very fervent believer in Jesus. And he believed with fellow restorationists that the time had come for the long dispersion of the Jewish people to come to an end and for the nation of Israel to be established. It was the single factor that drove him to agree with Chaim Weizmann to make a declaration that would open up the doors, tear down dark spiritual doors and lead to the establishment of the state of Israel. We can talk of John Knox in Scotland that God raised up at a pivotal time to defend the Protestant Reformation in that land. And of course, Billy Graham, who had such favor with politicians and kings that in America and elsewhere, literally with the British monarchy, that he spoke into their lives. He never took over those governments. No, he had one thing in mind, as you well know, a door through which the church could go for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. In all cases, Christians never took over their government, but they highly impacted them and served in them as salt and light. And we need to pray for that today. Oh God, raise up leaders. Truly, we need to pray for that. Raise up leaders in the structures of our governments that will take down strongholds and advance the glorious message of Jesus in the world. That is so important. Now, history has shown and proved, and this is important, that when Christians seek temporal power, the results have been catastrophic and the church has suffered greatly from spiritual adultery, compromise, and wickedness. We are not seeking temporal power. My dear friends, we are not seeking territorial power. We are seeking for wonderful gates to be opened in our nations so that the gospel of Jesus can advance through them. And that's what Paul did. That's why he wanted to go to Rome. He was a Roman citizen. 
And that's what all the other great leaders of the church did. But when the church strives for temporal power, for territorial jurisdiction, the result historically has been that of evil and of wickedness. And I think we need to be absolutely clear about this that the chapter 17 of the book of Revelation warns about this. It's not only a chapter that looks forward to the future and great cataclysmic upheavals, but it's a chapter that warns about a church that is rich and full of power and uh, compromises with the political structures of the world and rides those structures and seeks the glory of those structures for its own influence and its own power. When the church has done that historically, the result has been catastrophic. And the Bible says a church that seeks temporal power, territory, is a whore or a prostitute. She's not going through any gates. She's not possessing any gates. She's become part of the problem. And I saw that in South Africa some decades ago now, where the Dutch Reformed Church, the moderator was a man called Kurt Foster. His brother, John Foster, was the prime minister of the country. And they together rigorously applied the apartheid system over the majority of black South Africans. Two brothers. And in order to do that, they needed the white Dutch reformed constituency. And so formally, that Dutch Reformed Church, and by the way, it doesn't exist anymore. But they formally needed a minority in order to keep a grip on power and to endorse from a biblical perspective apartheid. The consequences we all know about, the dehumanization of people, the loss of dignity, and of course, the discrediting of the church because it looked for territorial power. That church repented of all of that. And the man that led that church out of that system paid with his life he was assassinated but today the dutch reformed church of southern africa is a shining light to the gospel of jesus it's no longer seeking temporal power it's taking hold of the strongholds and demonic gates in unseen spiritual places in order to further the glorious preaching of gospel to the nation.
We need to know that. Do you know that in 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks about the limits of his authority? And today you get this unrestrained sense that we as Christians have all this incredible power and authority and we can dethrone presidents and prime ministers. My friends, we cannot do that. It's outside of our authority. Paul says the limits of his authority is the sphere that God gave him to preach the gospel. And in that sphere, to take down strong demonic powers. Opening up a glorious gate for the gospel of Jesus. And so fifthly, and this is probably one of the most important things I can say today in this part one about possessing the gates of our enemies. What we need urgently is the restoration of corporate prayer meetings in local churches everywhere. We need that urgently. You know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, stated a principle when he said that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, he said, actually, apart from all that goes on in his day, in the house of God, the temple, the sanctuary, the chief purpose as to why it existed and all the other purposes were actually God prescribed. So we're not belittling them. But the chief purpose was that it should be a house of prayer. The chief purpose of your local church is that it should be a house of prayer. But today, this is not true. The early church made corporate prayer its most referred to practice. You can go from chapter to chapter and uh, it states in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 34, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. You can go on and on that all the believers were in one place, in one accord, in the local church, in a place of prayer. We're not given much insight into the liturgy of the local church, apart from an external book that nearly made it into the New Testament canon, which is called the Didache. But in the scriptures themselves, we don't have much of an insight into the liturgical practices of the early church. We know they had this and they did that. They had Bible study, but we, we don't have a picture as to how they did that. But we do have a constant picture of the fact that they never stopped praying. And it's because of their prayers, importunate prayer, that they took down demonic strongholds, took hold of the gates of their enemies. 
went through them and brought hundreds of thousands and millions of people into the kingdom of God. Someone once said, and it's true, it's a pithy little statement. It goes like this. The Sunday morning service in a church reveals the popularity of the preacher. The Wednesday night Bible study reveals the popularity of the Bible. And the Friday night prayer meeting reveals the popularity of God. That's quite a statement. If we ever hope to take down the gates of our enemies, then we better rediscover prayer in the local church. It is routinely true that even in churches of hundreds and thousands, the prayer meetings are never larger than 20 or 50. Why? It's a good question. But we do like instant prayers, whereby we take hold of this, we command that, we put in place rulers and take rulers down. But will we really lay hold of God like the disciples did in Acts chapter 4 when they were persecuted and beaten up? They came back and they prayed and they sought the face of God and they called upon God as they were routinely doing. And they said, Lord, give us even increased boldness to take down the gates of our enemies by the proclamation of the gospel. The Bible says, when they prayed prayers like that, the house in which they were seated was shaken by the Holy Spirit. You know, the Welsh revival, it's good to read about revivals, friends. The Welsh revival was astonishing. It was amazing. It was the precursor to the great Azusa Street revival. And those who were there and wrote about it said that the believers had such a desire for prayer that the little Welsh chapels scattered all over the hills and valleys were just filled with people to the door and sometimes outside the door. The people began to pray day and night. And suddenly there came a time when in a number of these chapels they saw fire breaking out on the roof and people ran to get their buckets fill them with water and to douse the fire only to find out that the fire was not real. It was spiritual. And suddenly, all over Wales and through England, 
men and women were swept into the kingdom of God. The gates of hell were taken down. And the church possessed the lives of precious men and women. My dear friends, trying to possess physical gates is easier than the effort it takes to tear down the spiritual gates of wickedness in heavenly places. Paul said we wrestle against these dark demonic principalities. We wrestle. We need to remember that. In other words, it's a massive fight. We grapple. We don't give up. We are filled with exhaustion and pain. We wrestle until they come down. Until the church comes to that place, we will not see these gates come down. Frank Bartleman was one of the men who prayed in the great Azusa revival. It's a wonderful story. And uh, it's containing a book called Another Wave Rolls In. But he almost prayed himself to death. Actually, if his family and friends did not go out into the fields to get him, and to bring him home. He would have died. Because he took hold of the gates of hell. And tore them down. And his friend, I forget his name. It'll come to me, David, you might remember. A wonderful black preacher with him. Prayed with him. Seymour. George Seymour. He was an interesting character. He put a bucket over his head so that he wouldn't be distracted. And Seymour and Bartleman, a black guy and a white guy, held hands spiritually, tore down the gates of hell. And the birthing of Pentecostal churches worldwide has swept millions into the kingdom of God. Another book tells the story. It's called Suddenly from Heaven. Yes. Yes, friends. Suddenly from Heaven. But actually, importunately on earth, men nearly died in prayer to change their world. Are we really dedicated and ready to possess the gates of hell for the kingdom of God? Amen and amen. Thank you, Malcolm. It's just an excellent teaching and, and uh, challenge to us. I know we're getting a lot of responses from people. We've had a lot of folks uh, just hanging on uh, all, all the points that you've made and 
Uh, I tell you, it's, you know, for a lot of Christians, when you're born again, you know, it's hard enough to deal with this tension that you're in the world, but not of it. And you're trying to deal with that. But here you're, you're dealing with the very purpose of the church. And when, when Jesus first talked to, when he talked about uh, possessing the gates of hell, it was in the context of Peter, you know, voicing this, this confession, the, uh, this revelation, thou art the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus said, you know, it, it points out that the church is not an institution. It's not in, uh, territorial. He said, uh, uh, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, meaning the confession, confession. you are the Christ, not the person, That's right. but the confession. And I, I learned it from, um, he was actually a Jewish, uh, Orthodox Jewish scholar, leading Orthodox Jewish scholar on Jesus and the early church. You probably know and remember Professor David Flusser. Oh, yes, he said Jesus Jesus didn't intend to start an institution, something that had territorial power, whatever. He started a, a he intended to start a movement. So a movement built upon this confession Absolutely. and preaching the name of Jesus, the gospel going forth, and that is the business of the church. And we're always tempted to to go with the world. And, you know, it happened in Germany. You cited some examples, but it, it happened in Germany where good churches, uh, and they, they decided to compromise with the Nazis, with Hitler and the Nazis in order to get along. They thought good things were happening. And it was a few pastors who broke off and, and formed the confession, the confessing church. They confessed Jesus is Lord. And that, that's what the church is about. And they got persecuted and some have even martyred for that. And this is the, the temptation we always face. It's good to have an influence on culture, speak truth to power, have an influence, have Christians in places of power that we can never forget. And I, I respect that so much about Billy Graham, who you mentioned, mm. that, uh, you know, he stuck to his calling. And he tried to stay out of politics for the sake of the gospel. He, uh, early in his career, he, he, he got known for preaching. He was an anti-communist, <laughs> but he sort of dropped that and later preached in communist countries where no other preacher could get in there. You know? <laughs> and the whole point of, that you've made of uh, you know, trying to cozy up to temporal power and get a little power yourself and all. I think of the vision of, in Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar sees the, the, the tall statue, the tower of gold and silver and bronze and uh, iron and feet, the legs and feet of iron and clay, that in the end, it all crumbles and falls because a rock comes out of a mountain and it hits the statue and it crumbles and is ground into powder as if it never existed. Mm, absolutely. And this is where the institutions of this world and the world, what, what even in New Testament, Jesus, the world and all its influence and the systems of this world, when Jesus takes power and he's our Lord, we follow him. Uh, that's what's going to happen even to my American government. I have to admit it. it. It will crumble and pass away as if it never 
existed. So I'm not interested in those reins of power. Exactly. Um, I think that's very important and uh, uh, how true that is. And it's like you just said, uh, Daniel, who you mentioned, uh, impacted the government, but he never took it over. Sorry. He was salt and light, but he never took it over. And God used him in a pivotal way to facilitate the return of the Jews because he kept his position up until the reign of Cyrus. Amazing. Yes. Yeah, there's there's always that higher purpose. But uh, yeah, I I lobbied in Washington in the Congress, and you know I've we should have and try to have influence there. But the, our our you don't get caught up in it to the point where you're you know when you're fighting more for a, 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 that your nation would be Christian than than really preaching the gospel and influence it that way in the the movement that we were born into, then uh, you've missed it. Uh, we so look forward to next week when you take up part two, which will be looking at the gates of the church itself in order to possess the gates of the enemy, the gates of hell. We have to possess the gates of the church itself to strengthen it in order to complete its mission. We're really looking forward to that. And uh, please, uh, everyone who's been here in this teaching, tell, tell your friends, your family and all to tune in next week, this same time, Thursday afternoon, 4 p.m. Israel time for part two of this teaching by uh, Reverend Malcolm Heading on possessing the gates of our enemies. Malcolm is the former executive director of the Christian embassy. Before that, he was our chaplain and now he is uh, you know, he's just been with the ministry from almost the very start and uh, knew those who founded it and, and has a, had a great influence on our ministry. We still appreciate you on, on our board and a, and a spokesman, a preacher for us, Malcolm. Thank and, you. Uh, and he's found a nice place up in, uh, up along the coast of Israel uh, towards Haifa. And he's got a nice villa. And if I told him where it was, they'd all be beating on your door. But if you go to Zikron Yaakov, it's it's the nicest, biggest estate in town, okay? <laughs> Just look for that one. <laughs> no, the Lord's blessed him there to, to come back to Israel and, and spend a lot more time here and complete some things that the Lord would have for him in this country. The Lord's really sovereignly leading him in that way. And we just bless you and thank you for your time. Just want to tell everyone uh, we have our feast webinar tomorrow uh, at three o'clock Israel time. Uh, uh, Tiffany uh, Malinin, our uh, feast registrar and I will be hosting that. We have Jehu Chan from Singapore. I, I know he was on here writing in the chat a, a little while ago. He'll be with us. Uh, and we'll have Israel Pakhtar from here in Israel will be talking about keeping the feast and why even though we can't travel, we still have this duty and obligation to keep this feast every year because you don't wanna miss it one year because that might be the year when the Holy Ghost falls like at Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost. You wanna be in the house of God or with the people of God observing these feasts and uh, we're going to talk about this year's online feast, September 20th through 27th, 
join us. It's going to be an exciting time and join us tomorrow for the feast webinar. Also next week, the global prayer gathering on Wednesday, uh, 4 p.m. Israel time. Uh, Malcolm's just given us a great challenge to be people of prayer and people of collective prayer. And this has been going on. Actually, we've had the Isaiah 62 uh, global prayer uh, initiative uh, since 2011. So we're talking over uh, 2010 or so, we're talking about 10 or 11 years now we've been doing this. And now it's a weekly uh, uh, prayer gathering online. You can join us there. Of course, uh, Peter Suka here will be there. I think Dr. Jurgen Bueller, our uh, president, will be back for that. Uh, he's celebrating his 27th wedding anniversary today to his lovely wife, Vesna. And uh, so they're on a break, but Jurgen will be back uh, on Wednesday to host the Global Prayer Gathering. Peter Sukahira, we got Angus Buchan from South Africa, who'll be with us. Uh, we're just excited to have him again. Rick Ridings of the Sukkotalel Prayer Ministry here in Jerusalem, and our own Priscilla Campos, our Portuguese language coordinator from Brazil. She's also a gifted worship leader. She'll be leading us worship. So that's next Wednesday, Global Prayer. Next Thursday, right back here for part two of this teaching by Malcolm. And tomorrow, the feast webinar. God bless you as we go. Take these words to heart. Be doers of the word and not just hearers. Amen. Thanks, David. Through the prophet Elijah, the Lord worked mighty miracles all across the land of Israel. This year at the Feast of Tabernacles, we want you to experience that same fire of the Holy Spirit as in the days of Elijah. Journey with us through seven days of exciting Sukkot events in Jerusalem and all around Israel. Join us live from Qumran on the shores of the Dead Sea, where the voices of the prophets still echo. From Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus' miracle working power was on display. And from Mount Carmel, where the fire of God rained down. You don't want to miss a minute of this year's feast. When you register online today, you'll get access to all seven live shows from around Israel and over 80 plus seminars from Bible teachers and experts around the world. You'll also be able to join us for global prayer and anointed worship from Israeli and international artists. I know the Lord has a special appointment with you at the Feast of Tabernacles this year. Register online today and we'll see you at the feast.